This week on The Elucidators Decoding Global News, we journey to one of the most dangerous places on Earth, the Taiwan Strait, a narrow body of water that separates the island nation of Taiwan from the People's Republic of China. This past weekend, China sent dozens of warplanes across the strait's median line, sending an unmistakably threatening message to the vibrant democracy it has always regarded as a renegade province. Does this mean war? Stay tuned and find out. And welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. As always, I'm your host, Steve Pally. With me, as always, is my co-host, Pete Newsom. Pete, what's going on, man? Not so much, Steve. Things are going okay. How are you, my man? Things are going good. Uh, we got the kid back in the preschool, so happy about that. Uh, yeah, that must make things like much more peaceful around the house, I would imagine. Very much so. And um, he's probably happier. Much happier. Uh, he has his friends, and they get real dirty, <laughs> and they have arguments about stuff like who gets to play with the train at a certain time. And so basically, all kinds of things that like three and a half year olds should be able to do, exactly, but have not been doing for six months. So yeah, it's a tough it's, one. It is tough, but it is uh, you know it's a little piece of normalcy. It's nice. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. Very good. And uh, potty training is proceeding apace. So we got that going for us too. Yeah, you're doing well with that? Yeah. yeah. Um, so we've, <laughs> we've got an incentive structure in place involving Thomas trains. I don't know if you're familiar with these. Yeah. And what it really amounts to is classical conditioning. You know, it's a variable reward, but uh -huh. he knows he's going to get something good if the right sequence of events happens around potty Man. time. So for me, peeing is its own reward, but hey, <laughs> yeah, I guess. you kind of grow into feeling that way, I guess. Depends how much fluid you drink. And you're a man who is who enjoys his late night coffee. So I'm a coffee consumer. Yeah, people, I, people know I, this about me. Yeah, no, I do. And if they and, don't, I'm saying it publicly. I drink coffee a lot. Yeah. As do I, just never passed about noon. And you're chilling, what, 8.30 at night and cruising with the cappuccino. Well, you can flip your brain on without coffee, and I no longer can, so. Uh, <laughs> it, it is, is what on? it is. I don't know if this is on or not. <laughs> oh, ouch. Oh, you're <laughs> yeah. saying about yourself. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, you're good. <laughs> Thanks, brother. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I have, like, any gears anymore. I think they've all been stripped. So, well, you got some uh, headroom yeah. to play with there. The, inshallah. Anyway, <laughs> we should probably talk about international relations, huh? Yeah, why not? What are we doing this week? Where are we this week? This week, we are talking about Taiwan, Steve. We're talking about Taiwan because this is perhaps the world's single most dangerous military flashpoint. And Pete, I was telling you before we started recording, I've been to three different schools to study international relations and bombs and bullets, basically, at three different levels, bachelor's, master's, and PhD. And professors at all three levels told me, basically, that this was the most likely place for World War III to start. <laughs> Starting in 1999 and yeah. continuing through 2015. Yeah, that is surprising and somewhat shocking for me to hear. I mean, of course, I... I'm familiar with Taiwan. 
Sure. But when I think about all the things of major importance that are happening around the world, like happenings in Taiwan don't pop into my mind very frequently. I, until this week, I haven't been reading much about it. And I certainly never have thought of it as a place that would be such an important flashpoint for a war. I know. Um, you know, I now sort of understand the deal and we'll talk about it today, but it's uh, it's very surprising to hear that of all of all the hot spots in the world, the Taiwan Strait is one of the most important. Yeah, this could yeah, it it's it's number 1 in a lot of ways and it has been for a long time. I think that people don't think about Taiwan very much because Taiwan has just been handled for a mm-hmm. very long time, but that seems to be coming unraveled increasingly right. as time goes on. And as the situation unravels, it goes from handled to very much up in the air. <laughs> you get problems like China sending 37 military aircraft across the median line of the Taiwan Strait, including advanced fighters, bombers, and an anti-submarine plane this past weekend. Okay, so this just happened. Yes. China sent these military planes, 37 of them. Yes. You said across the median line of the Taiwan Strait. What does that mean? So Taiwan is separated from China by a narrow strip of water, basically the Taiwan Strait. It's not very far away from mainland China. And there's no formal border between these two areas, and we'll explain why that is uh, given time later in the show. But there's been kind of an unofficial line of control in between the two. That's just right in the middle, geographically, of the Taiwan Strait. And this is important because China has only crossed the median line three times in the last 20 years. And they've this has all happened, all three, since March of 2019. But the scale of this latest provocation is off the charts. We're talking about basically a full strike group over okay. two days. Yeah, and for for nineteen of the last twenty years, China respected this. I guess you would say imaginary line. Yeah, unofficial line. Of unofficial, control. unofficial border. So it's only uh, very recently that that changed. Yeah, that changed basically a year and a half ago when China started probing over the line. And it changed in a very big way Mm -hmm. this past weekend because they sent a ton of planes, like really quite a lot of military hardware over this line. So why did they do that? Well, great question. It turns out that the U.S. sent an undersecretary of state to Taiwan this past weekend to attend the funeral of Taiwan's first democratically elected president, Li Tanghui, who was known as Mr. Democracy, which I think is one of the better nicknames for a statesman that you can have. It beats yeah. Mr. Autocracy, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Dictatorship, <laughs> not as good. And so this caused quite a bit of kerfluffle on the Chinese side. They don't like it when the United States sends officials to Taiwan. The more important the official, the less they like it. The U.S. sent a cabinet-level official to Taiwan in August, and that was Health Secretary Alex Azar, Hmm. Azar, I guess, to talk about the coronavirus, among other things. Yeah, you can imagine that provoking China a little bit less than an uh, undersecretary of state. Yeah, because it's more of a a bounded reason for going. It's like health-related. 
Perhaps, but uh, we're not supposed to have official relations with Taiwan in any capacity. And we'll explain why that is a little bit later in the show. So anybody on that level coming to Taiwan sends a signal to China that they really don't appreciate. By the way, has, has the U.S. ever sent someone of that rank in the government to Taiwan? Not for a long time. Basically, since I think earlier in the Cold War. In any case, it's rare and it's known to be disruptive because China doesn't like it at all. Yeah, China doesn't like it at all. And that, that's right. We'll explain why a little bit later. Obviously, Beijing got some blowback for conducting what looked like a mock bombing raid <laughs> over the weekend. And on Monday, it's basically thumbed its nose at the United States and Taiwan by saying, hey, its forces are operating legally because Taiwan is an inalienable part of Chinese territory, meaning that there is no so-called median line. This was the foreign ministry's spokesperson Wang Wingbing's position uh, on Monday, uh, basically saying, well, Taiwan's part of China, so what's the mm -hmm. problem? <laughs> we can fly our planes wherever we want inside China. <laughs> Right, so he's saying there's been an un unofficial division, an unspoken line of division, but as of today, we're, we're officially saying that doesn't exist. Well, so it, it's really interesting. It's, it's different shades of gray and different, I guess, forms of sophistry or rhetorical devices, right? China has always said that Taiwan is part of China, right? An inalienable part of Chinese territory. There's nothing knew about what Wang Wenbin said in, in response to the opprobrium that, that China has received from this move. It's, it's more the move itself. It's the right? actions they put behind the words. Yeah, exactly. There's no so-called median line. It's like, no, it's an ocean, so there's no border crossing or anything like that. But we know where the median line is. And right. it's been respected to this point. <laughs> so, right. China acted as though there were a median line until 2019. Yeah, exactly. So there's been a change there. And the fact of the matter is, Taiwan has been a de facto independent country for 70 plus years at this point. But again, the Chinese Communist Party has never recognized it as anything other than a renegade province of China. And one thing we know about the Chinese Communist Party under its new leader, Xi Jinping, he's not so new anymore, he's been in control for almost 10 years now. He intends to reunify China under Chinese Communist Party control. And he wants China to become number one. He has a policy called the China Dream. And this is a big part of it. Reunification. And so we've talked about Xi Jinping's policies many times on this show in the past in reference to Hong Kong, which is basically no longer independent in any way that really matters. In reference to Xinjiang in Western China, where something like a million Muslim Uyghur Chinese minorities are in re-education camps at the moment. Uh, in reference to the Himalayas, where the Chinese are aggressively prosecuting a, a border conflict against the Indians at something like 15,000 feet. And in the South China Sea, where the Chinese have been aggressively expanding their naval presence and building bases and airstrips on atoll, atolls and reefs that, are, that have a contested ownership. And 
Taiwan is kind of the last and most important piece of the puzzle. Got it. So China has become incredibly more aggressive about this policy in just the last year. Exactly. Yeah, the last year or two, things have really se- seemed to speed up. And Taiwan is, out of all of these things that are f- frightening and dismaying, Taiwan could be the biggest of them all, basically. Right. At this exact moment, there's no way to be certain which way things are going there. No. I think, I think we, ha- we can make some reasonable guesses. But first, we should probably figure out what the deal is with Taiwan, right, Pete? Sure thing, Steve. Yeah. I'll go ahead and, and expound on this a little bit. Yeah, help me out. Sure. Taiwan is an island state off the coast of China. Right. It's about the size of Maryland and Delaware combined. I don't know why you didn't just say a Maryland and a half or something. A Maryland like that. and a half. <laughs> I think we only use Maryland as a you know as a unit of measurement. <laughs> exactly. Delaware doesn't get to join it. Come on, man. <laughs> so, for instance, China would be twenty three and a half Marylands or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, no need to bring another state into the. That just it's like merging metric system and King's English yeah, or whatever Im- that's called. Imperial. Yeah. I'll edit out me calling it King's English. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Don't edit it. All right. We might let it stay. We'll see. So it's about that size, mm. a Maryland and, and a half. It has jungles and mountains, kind of like Hawaii. Yeah. So and I pulled up Google Maps before this show. And sure enough, they're at the same uh, level of latitude. Oh. So it's kind of uh, kind of tropical, actually. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. 8 million people live there, and it's highly urbanized. Mm -hmm. Developmentally, it's on par with the USA, Canada, Western Europe, South Korea, and Japan, which is to say it's a a first world industrialized country. It has, it's basically, depending on how you count, somewhere in the, between 10 and 20 in terms of GDP per capita. It's, it's wealthier than Spain, for instance. Maybe that's because they don't take a nap from like 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. every day. Oh, siestas, yeah. They, they have a very strong high-tech manufacturing industry. So yes, a lot they of do. Yeah. semiconductors and microchips are, are mm-hmm. manufactured there. Taiwan was perhaps the world's best performer during COVID-19, which is ongoing, of course, but they have performed very well under the leadership of President Tsai Ing-wen, who we've yes. spoken about before. That's right. Uh, when we did an episode on... Lady leaders. Yeah. The, the excellent performance of lady lead, female leaders of countries around the world during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of the reason that Taiwan has done well when facing COVID is that it has experience with the SARS epidemic of 2003. Was that epidemic or pandemic? Epidemic. It was an, yeah, it was not a pandemic, thankfully, because SARS yeah. was a lot more dangerous than COVID, which is hard right. to believe, but like a lot, a lot more. Yeah. But it made it to Taiwan and did quite a bit of damage there. Mm. So the people there learned to wear masks, for instance. Mm-hmm. Learn uh, to act, act early. Yes, act early, do social distancing, wash their hands, all the things that we've had to learn over Got time it. very painfully. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. So because of that experience, Taiwan started responding to COVID 
in December 2019, which is actually well before China even admitted that there was a problem. Right. And that also tells you that Taiwan has pretty good intelligence on what's going on inside China, which is not surprising. Right, right. Indeed. They, Taiwan ramped up mask production quickly, and they ramped it up mm-hmm. to the point that, that it was able to donate 12 million masks to the USA. Yeah. That's a lot. Thanks, Taiwan. We, we needed those. <laughs> we probably need even more. <laughs> so, the equation here is early start plus transparency plus civic activism Yep. with the addition of crowdsourced data equals success when fighting massive a success. Yeah. massive success. So, that's the, the current deal with Taiwan. Yes. So, Taiwan is at a place with the pandemic where people... A lot of people apparently aren't even wearing masks anymore because it's just not even a thing. <laughs> they, I'll admit they, that's surprising to me pre-vaccine. Uh, yeah. That, I mean, of course, even in places where it's gone okay, COVID can come back. It can, and it might in Taiwan too, but I think that they have had such a good handle on it. And again, they're an island. They're better able to control their borders than mm. a lot of other places. Yeah, people are walking around without masks and it does not appear to be a problem because they're still getting tested constantly. Oh, yeah. I am jealous of yeah. any system that allows for that. That would be really nice, right? If we could do something like that. But we can't. So yeah. <laughs> instead, we, we just have to admire them from afar. That's right. <laughs> so that's, that's modern Taiwan. What happened in the, in, in the Taiwanese past? Shall I go into it? Yeah, why don't you? All right. The first thing to know about Taiwan, in terms of its reasonably modern history, was colonized by Imperial Japan starting in the late 19th century, after Japan beat China in the first Sino-Japanese War. Uh, A few weeks ago, we talked about the Meiji Restoration and Japan's modernization, early modernization in the 19th century. They fought a war against China and took over Taiwan and Korea. That's interesting that the Japan controlled Taiwan for a while. Are there remnants of Japanese culture in Taiwan? I am not sure. So a lot of the first cadre of Taiwanese leaders had actually been trained under the Japanese administration Hmm. and in some cases even served in the Japanese military. Like Li Tenghui, for instance, was trained by the Japanese military. Mr. Democracy. I was going to say... Yeah. I only know him as that, as Mr. Democracy. Mr. So. Democracy, yeah. And I think he drew different lessons from Japanese military training than the Japanese did, pretty clearly. But his name wasn't Mr. Genocide, was it? No, it was not Mr. Genocide. <laughs> anyway, the Japanese control continued until the end of World War II when they ceded Taiwan to China, basically. But pretty much immediately after World War II, the Chinese Civil War breaks out between Mo Zedong's Chinese Communist Party and this guy, Chiang Kai-shek, his Nationalist Party, um, otherwise known as the Kuomintang, or KMT. So you have uh, Mo, who's the communist, and Zhang, who is the nationalist. But what he really is, is kind of a military dictator. Mm. So an anti-communist along the lines of, what's a good example? Really almost kind of fascist, I would say. Okay, quick quick aside. 
I've been always saying Mao. Is that it's Mo? It's, it's actually Mo. <laughs> <laughs> Mao's fine too. Okay. Yeah. Chair, Chairman Mo. Chairman Mo. Yeah. And Chiang Kai shek. Yeah. So Chiang Kai shek's nationalists eventually lose the Civil War and flee to Taiwan in 1949 with two million supporters. Mm. And this is the beginning of modern Taiwan. Two million. That's a lot of that is quite a few uh, yeah. immigration to hit one little island. Yeah, I, I think the Chinese communists watched this happen and kind of let it happen because they were like, these guys will just stay here and cause problems. If, so just hmm. like bottle them up on this island for a while. It's fine. Got it. So Chang and his supporters call themselves the Republic of China, which is still Taiwan's formal name. Hmm. Right? And they still consider themselves, or they have for a very long time, to be the rightful governors of all of China. Not just Taiwan, but also the mainland. After the communists won, you know, the, the nationalists still retained a lot of military power. So it wasn't out of the question that they'd be able to come back at some point. Mm -hmm. But that probably would have required more help from the Americans or something like that. Right, which, and that, that point is now behind them. Yeah, very much so. Anyway... The Republic of China was not a republic. It was a brutal military dictatorship that was frankly not that much better than the Chinese Communist Party at this point in time. It was actually very similar to the, these, the Republic of Korea or South Korea after the Korean War, which was also a military dictatorship. Mm. And Taiwan was basically governed under martial law for 40 years between 1949 and basically 1987. So if you said something the government didn't like, they'd disappear you kind of thing? They could lock you up, kill you. One of the first things the Kuomintang did after getting to China was murder 20 to 30,000 dissidents, intellectuals, and native Taiwanese. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. During a period of time called the White Terror, starting in 1947. Okay. And Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, again, they were very open about their plans to eventually rec reclaim China from the Chinese Communist Party by force. It's like, we're coming to get you guys. Just wait. And it was a much more evenly matched fight at that time. It was, yeah. But obviously, controlling China and controlling Taiwan are two completely different things. Taiwan being, you know, one-thirtieth the size of China or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Sure. So... Yeah. How realistic was it? Not especially, perhaps. Sounds like Kai, Kai Chengshek didn't even try. And maybe he didn't try because he knew it wouldn't work. But Yeah, he, he didn't try, but I think it was a good idea for him. He felt it was a good idea if, uh, to keep saying it because it helped him keep control of Taiwan, too. Right, right. <laughs> it's like the rationale for martial laws, we're still fighting this war against the <laughs> communists. So I still need to be in charge. Absolutely, yeah. And that lasted for 40 years. It was him and then basically his son. During this period of time, and from here on out, Taiwan becomes a client state of the United States of America. And this is official U.S. policy from the years 1949 to 1979, during which time the United States and Taiwan are in a mutual defense treaty. So they're an, an actual treaty ally of the United States, which means that the Chinese do not dare invade because they know that we will respond. 
They don't dare invade the U.S. because they know Taiwan will protect us. Exactly. <laughs> if they go past <laughs> Taiwan on the way to, say, Hawaii or California or whatever, the yeah. Taiwanese would come up behind them, right? And sure sink thing. their boats. Right, right. Uh, that's how that worked. <laughs> and then, however, in 1979, what happened? Yes. So, basically... During the 1970s, and starting with the Nixon administration, the United States starts to pivot to China. Nixon goes to China and opens up China very famously in an effort to basically steal a march on the Soviet Union. Prior to this point in time, the USSR and China are sort of communist allies, but they don't see eye to eye. And the US sees an opportunity to peel China away from the Soviet Union in the Cold War. Hmm. And so as part of this, the Chinese Communist Party wants to be recognized as the legitimate government of China. The U.S. did not recognize the Chinese Communist Party for 30 years. It only recognized the Republic of China Uh as the rightful government of all of China. So Um, Taiwan sat on the U.N. representing China? Yes. However... In order to make this switch, the Chinese Communist Party requires the U.S. to sever official relations with the Republic of China, with Taiwan and the Kuomintang. Mm. You just said Taiwan represented China in the U.N. Yes, it did, up until about 1971. So the U.N. actually made the switch to the Chinese Communist Party in 71. Got it. And we we followed eight years later because we're a little bit slow. (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. Um, So we de-recognized Taiwan and recognize the communists, basically. That's part of a larger gambit during the Cold War. And it works. Uh Uh-huh. Until now, maybe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Until pretty recently. However, that doesn't mean that we sever all relations with Taiwan, because at the same time, Congress passes what's called the Taiwan Relations Act. And what this act does is it declares that the future of Taiwan must be decided by peaceful means. That means no invasion allowed from China. Okay. It further stipulates that the United States will sell Taiwan arms of a defensive nature, and the USA will maintain capacity to resist anything that would jeopardize Taiwan's independence. Okay. So these two items basically improves, improves Taiwan's ability to deter Chinese aggression itself, and it also extends deterrence in an ambiguous way. It makes it sound like the U.S. is willing to step in militarily. Well, we'll maintain the capacity to resist. We do not say that we're going to come to Taiwan's aid. Got it. So it's very specific, very specific wording. Yes, very specific and very ambiguous wording because we don't want Taiwan to start a war, stupidly under the assumption that we're going to like come bail them out. Uh, we basically want to put a lid on this whole situation. But we also really don't want China to invade Taiwan. Right, yeah. We want, we want to keep them apart from each other, basically. So we basically you know, say, we may come in, we may not. I don't know. In the meantime, we're going to help Taiwan beef up their army so they can protect themselves a little bit better against China. And... We're just going to sit on this, right? And this is the policy of strategic ambiguity. 
by which neither China nor Taiwan can be sure we will do anything in response to a move on either side. So they don't do anything. Mm -hmm. And this policy basically has lasted for 40 years. And so that ambiguity has prevented either side from provoking the other. Yeah, for a very long time. There have been a few bumps in the road, but by and large, it's worked. And it's also worked to promote this other rhetorical device, which is the one China policy that all three sides are committed to. Those sides being the Chinese Communist Party, the Republic of China, and the United States. And the one China policy is basically the recognizance that Taiwan is part of China. There's only one China. But we're not saying who is rightfully in charge of that one China. And nobody is going to push the issue <laughs> either. <laughs> <laughs> and at this juncture, the idea that Taiwan could be in charge of mainland China is pretty like, laughable. Yeah, it's preposterous. But that's yeah. officially their stance. It was for a long time. But this is breaking down. It's breaking down for a lot of reasons. And we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah, but yeah, that, that was kind of the house of cards that we set up very carefully and then backed away from. Hmm. And it actually stood up more or less for 40 years, which is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> not bad. That's not bad. <laughs> Seems like about a week ago, someone came along to blow on that house of cards as hard as they could mm -hmm. to see if it would stay up. <clears throat> Xi Jinping has been stomping around increasingly <laughs> loudly and coming increasingly closer to the table that the House of Cards is resting on, for sure. <laughs> Real fast, we'll get into what's happened to Taiwan during the period of democratization. So martial law was finally lifted by Chiang Kai-shek's son, Chiang Qingguo, in 1987, 38 years later. <laughs> it's a long wow. war. And then Mr. Democracy, Li Tenghui, hey. became Taiwan's first democratically elected president in 1996. Now, he was Chiang Qingquo's vice president. And so when he died in, I guess, 1988, he became president. And the country was still a, a dictatorship at that time in, in 1988. But he spearheaded open elections in 1996. This is the guy who just passed away at age 97. That we sent an undersecretary of state to the funeral of? Exactly. Li Tenghui, Mr. Democracy. And he has kind of an interesting story that I think um, is worth getting into a little bit because it just explains the rise of modern independent Taiwan. He was born in Japan-occupied Taiwan. He earned a PhD from Cornell in agricultural economics. And he was the first Taiwanese native to gain power. Remember that the Kuomintang are from mainland China originally. Mm -hmm. And there, there had been plenty of people on Taiwan who were Chinese ethnically, but had been born there. But they were not in charge of Taiwan for a very long time. It, were, it was these mainlanders who still wanted to go back, basically. Mm. Okay. But Mr. Democracy was not one of those guys. <laughs> He's from Taiwan, and he was the first Taiwanese leader to speak in the Taiwanese dialect of Chinese instead of Mandarin Chinese, which is the language of the mainland. Hmm. And he encouraged the formation of a separate Taiwanese identity, right, uh, which had never been done before. That's a break from the idea of like we're 
we're going back to the mainland to to run exactly. everything. This is still China. We're going to go back. We'll take over from the communists. And then, you know, mm-hmm. China will be the Republic of China for real. Is like, no, we're actually Taiwanese now because <laughs> we're on Taiwan. We're not going back to China. Uh-huh. We should speak Taiwanese and be Taiwanese and Might be as proud well of that. Acknowledge reality, kind of. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's probably time to put this to bed, right? And move away from this one China policy and say, no, there are two Chinas, or if you prefer, one China and one Taiwan. <laughs> That's fine, too. <laughs> Which doesn't actually fit this ambigu- ambiguous, no. odd house of cards, as you put it. It doesn't. So this is kind of the start of some wobbles in that house of cards around 1996. Okay. And But this policy has worked in that two-thirds of Taiwanese now consider themselves to be Taiwanese first, and only 3% Chinese first. Like now, as in today. Yeah, as in today, yeah. So Mr. Democracy really kicked off this movement of considering Taiwan to be its own country. Have a national identity and... Yeah. So. Now, uh, yeah, its own national identity, exactly. The Chinese communists hated Lee for obvious reasons, because they felt that he was promoting Taiwanese independence, which he was. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Even though he was a member of the Kuomintang, and Kuomintang at this point in time was still officially committed to the One China policy, de facto, he was saying, hey, no, we're Taiwanese. And so prior to this election, this first democratic election in 1996, they precipitate the Taiwan Strait Crisis. So China starts launching missiles all around Taiwan and threatening war if Li hmm. Tenghui is elected democratically. Launching missiles, like testing them into the ocean? Yeah, or hitting exactly. targets? No, not, not hitting targets, launching them into the ocean, kind of like North Korea now does. Yeah, okay. And at this point, the Taiwan Strait Crisis ends when President Bill Clinton sends two carrier battle groups through the Taiwan Strait. Just floating through? Yeah, floating on through. And at this point, we can beat the Chinese with two carrier battle groups, no problem. Okay. So they calm down. Like mm-hmm. this is, a, this is a, a major, major threat. And we can squash them in 1996. So they're like, okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> and they dialed it back. Exactly. For, for 24 years. We we saw their their bet and raised them a million dollars, basically. They were like, okay, too rich for our blood. We're <laughs> not we'll, ready for we'll this. We'll be back. Yeah, we're not ready for this. You guys can have your election and you can elect this guy. It's a it's a double insult, right? Because number number one, it's a democracy now. Mm-hmm. Number two, they're electing a guy who's Taiwanese. He's not Chinese. Got it. So they, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, has a big interest in furthering the idea that a democracy can't work in yeah. and around China. Totally. Yeah, because that undermines their rationale for control. For basically. existing. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and at this point in time, the United States can protect Taiwan against a threat from China because we're just so much stronger than them. This is, you know, still at the end of the Cold War. This is after we've destroyed Iraq and the first Gulf War. Nobody can stop us from doing this. We have the world's paramount military and it's not even close. 
Yeah. So this is easy. So after Mr. Democracy is elected in 96, his political party, the Kuomintang, loses power to pro-independence, pro-independence party, the Democratic People's Party, the DPP, in 2000. And this is Tsai Ing-wen's party, basically. So this is a big break. Uh, it's a huge break. Like in 1995, say, the, the Kuomintang... The Kuomintang, is, yeah. Kuomintang is unquestionably like represents Taiwan's stance. And then 96, Mr. Democracy comes in. He's still Kuomintang though. He's still Kuomintang in in name, but his actions are that he's promoting a separate national identity Identity. for Taiwan. Mm -hmm. Then four years later, a a new party called the People's Party, Democratic People's Party, that's completely pro-independence comes into power. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal for, again, two more reasons. One reason is that you have the DPP, which is pro-independence, as you've said, and that's new. Another big deal, another reason, um, and this is perhaps an even bigger deal, is this means that Taiwan is actually democratic because the Kuomintang lost power in an election and actually gave up. They went away. (laughs) (laughs) That's part of the deal, isn't it? Like You're not democratic unless the party that loses actually gives up. But that's that's kind of a big deal it when you're is. coming from 40 years of martial law, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so this kind of like seals the deal. And we see now that Taiwan is actually a democracy. And democratic Taiwan can't be called anything other than a tremendous progressive success story. There have now been three peaceful transitions of power between these two main parties, the Kuomintang and the Democratic People's Party. You mean as of today, there have now been three, right? Since since two thousand, yeah. Did the KM did the KMT win again and then it transition did. back to yep. the DPP? Okay. Yep, they've gone back and forth. Okay, so that's how you know this is actually a democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're smoothly transitioning power and they have free and fair elections. This is the first Asian country to legalize same sex marriage, which is something the United States did only very recently and only by virtue of a Supreme Court decision. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Taiwan has the most press freedom in Asia and also the largest proportion of female legislatures. In fact, twice the United States' number. So probably up in the 40 to 50% range. Wow. And in fact, if you look at uh, our 2020 Freedom House democracy scores, Freedom House is this organization that measures democracy around the world, and political scientists look at it as a, a reasonably objective organization for looking at this stuff. They use it in sort of, uh, sort of their empirical studies of democracy, among other sources. Taiwan scores 93 out of 100 points, and the United States scores 86 out of 100. <laughs> <laughs> so they're at a solid AA minus. We're uh-huh. at a not-so-solid B. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's call it a gentleman's bee. <laughs> a gentleman's bee. Yeah. Um, I'm curious what some of the, I mean, what some of the factors are that they look at. Like, There's a lot of different factors. It has to do with civil society. So in terms of freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, free and fair elections, transitions of power are peaceful, representation, Safeguarding of minority rights. They have a whole scoring criteria, whole so scorecard, basically. Did we have an A like five or six years ago? 
We're coming from a higher score. I can tell you that much. (laughs) (laughs) And I haven't looked too recently, but I do know that we've been degrading for a while. It's been a matter of decades. And we've been degrading more steeply since 2016. Yeah. And that, I think, suits my reality (laughs) in terms of my lived experience. It lines up pretty well with what I see when I wake up in the morning and read the news, for sure. Yeah, it feels like an 86 and falling. (laughs) It's like we might get 86 from the Democracy Project or whatever that's called entirely. Freedom House. Well, so Freedom House scores China and Russia, too. China's weighing in at a big, I think, 10 out of 100, and Russia's at 20. (laughs) Jeez. Yeah, something like that. So we're still in pretty good shape, all things considered. (laughs) Let's hope it stays that way. Anyway, you, you raised this point earlier, Pete. Taiwan is just, it's a living, breathing refutation of the Chinese Communist Party's argument that democracy is incompatible with Chinese culture and values. Right. That's BS. Like, you just look at Taiwan, right? It's like, yeah, they're no, doing these guys are great. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they have a fantastic democracy, and they're firing on all cylinders, and they're ethnically Chinese. I mean, they call themselves Taiwanese now, but... Mm-hmm. So culturally, it, it fits their... Yeah. It fits their culture. Yeah, there's, there's no reason why China could not also have a successful democracy, <laughs> basically. Right. And it's, and these guys are just a thorn in the side, and they're right next to them. It's very inconvenient for the CCP. It's it's super inconvenient. So that's the long and the short, mostly the long <laughs> of Taiwan's <laughs> history. <laughs> let's let's get back to the current situation. So we we have this long-standing policy of strategic ambiguity, where we're not cool with China taking over Taiwan by force. But we're also not cool with Taiwan taking over China by force. And if anybody attempts anything, we're not saying what we're going to (laughs) do. Yeah. That's a policy of strategic ambiguity. (laughs) Uh It's a surprise that it lasted as long as it did. Yeah, it is kind of surprising. It's now breaking down. Why? Three factors. Okay. Right? What's factor number one, Pete? Let's say it's increased Chinese strength. That's, I think, correct. (laughs) We heard from our friend Professor Ryan Welgis last week that by some measurements, China now has a larger economy than the United States. I was surprised by that, but when he explained it, it actually made sense, and I think he's probably right. Mm. (laughs) Uh, He's definitely right. Mm -hmm. And China spends something like 15 times more on its military than Taiwan. There's, There's no contest. So it's a foregone conclusion how a military conflict between those two without the U.S. backing Taiwan would go. Correct. The question is, how much damage could Taiwan inflict? And would China be willing to take that type of damage? In the absence of the United States or any other interference, I think the answers are a fair amount, but not enough. And yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yikes. Yeah. And on top of this, China's military has just been getting way better. They have much improved air and missile capabilities, all of which have been geared towards denying access to the U.S. Navy. Because so we're not going to roll two uh, carriers through there again? No, sir. That's a no-go. <laughs> and 
basically, ever since 1996, the Chinese have been working to make sure that can never happen again. Mm -hmm. And now it can't. (laughs) So, mission accomplished. (laughs) And in fact, it's not just air and missile, it's also Navy. China now has the world's largest Navy in terms of number of ships. Surprising. In terms of numbers, but not by tonnage or capability. Correct. And that's an important note. Yeah. So we have heavier ships. <laughs> we have heavier ships. We have more carriers. We have better ships, better technology, yeah. probably a better Navy in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely a better Navy. But they're catching up. No question they're catching up. They're trying to catch up, mm-hmm. trying to catch up, and they're doing it. They've been outbuilding us in terms of tonnage since roughly 2015. So it's five years of outbuilding us. Didn't Trump say he's like revitalized the military? Yeah, he's said a lot of stuff. There tends to be a difference between stuff that he says and then what actually happens. I've never really fact-checked anything he said, but this one I might look into. Yeah, right. <laughs> Take a look. Because if they've been outbuilding us, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, it doesn't sound right. And the Pentagon is aware of this and has some plans to address it. The question is whether they're going to get funded. I think they probably should if we want to keep Taiwan independent. Mm. Yeah, but uh, yeah, the the Chinese are very much on the move. The overall picture is we're still significantly stronger overall, but China has been gaining steadily. And guess what? Taiwan is way further away from the United States than it is from China. So we'd have to project power much, much further. Right. And that's that basically makes things so much harder. And... It's a huge handicap. It's always been the case, of course. I mean, geography is what it is and always has been. But yes, China's abilities have increased enough that it's now, we'd have to do more at a farther distance. And not only have their capabilities increased, they've increased specifically to win this war. <laughs> they've been building to fight this war against us. And so they've, they've bought all the right stuff. Mm-hmm. While we've been buying stuff to do a bunch of different things all over the world. They've just been thinking about this. This specific thing, mostly. Yeah. Which, once you learn that, you kind of see why people who know, who study this, say this is one of the most dangerous like flashpoints right. in the world. And they started saying it basically after 1996. Mm-hmm. Because they were like, the Chinese are not just going to forget this. Mm-hmm. Well, they were like, what if China had been more militarily powerful at this moment? Yeah, it could have been a real fight. Yeah. And they were right to back down then, but they're going to go back to the drawing board and work for 25 years and become the world's largest economy. And <clears throat> China also now has the capability to attack U.S. bases further out, including as far out as Guam. And last weekend, China released a propaganda video involving uh, a bombing raid on what appeared to be Guam. Was it like CGI? Yeah, it was like CGI, and it (laughs) took scenes from like Hollywood movies and stuff, so it was a little... It was honestly kind of janky, but it was also like, look, Guam was in the video, right? (laughs) Yeah. They were sending a message. And like North Korea puts these videos out too. Sure, you know, that like they they say a lot of crazy stuff. When, When China says it, you got to kind of listen a little bit differently. Yeah, sure. With the biggest economy on earth. Yeah, <laughs> versus the North Koreans. Yeah, yeah, a little bit different. The conclusion of all of this is that 
the United States' ability to defend Taiwan against a Chinese invasion is kind of an open question. And here's the thing in international relations. You don't want open questions. Open questions are dangerous. Sure. Because somebody might try to resolve that open question. <laughs> if, yeah. if the question is closed, as it was in 1996, you send your courier groups through, the other side backs down. Sure. If the other side thinks that they can win, they get to decide the answer to the open question. Well, they get to decide to try, right? And then deterrence fails and you have to fight. Ideally, you never even have to fight because nobody ever tests you. The difference between <laughs> the ideal thing and the next less ideal thing is pretty vast there. Exactly. But they're now in a position where they've built to the point where they're actually able to deter us, potentially at least from intervening in a, in a Taiwan. Like the U.S. government or the more sane participants in the U.S. government are probably looking at Taiwan and thinking, is, is protecting this worth what it would cost now? Yeah. The cost is a lot higher than it was. A lot higher. A lot higher. It would be a real war against a real opponent that we frankly might not win. And we don't lose a lot of... Yeah, that's crazy to think about. We, don't, we lose insurgencies and stuff in Afghanistan, sure. We don't lose a lot of conventional wars. But we also haven't fought very many. <laughs> so, Yeah, and I, losing a conventional war to China wouldn't just stop with losing no, Taiwan. Who, who, who knows where that would end? Exactly. Ooh. Yeah. So that's... Yeah, I, I can see you on the Zoom. You're making faces. <laughs> well, that's just... yeah. You don't want to, you do not want to go there or think about going there. Yeah. No, but we kind of have to at this point. So that's one reason why strategic, strategic ambiguity is breaking down. Reason two, Taiwanese policy. Mm -hmm. We've got Tsai Ing Wen as president. She's very popular. She danced to re election in January. She is not actively pro independence, she wants to maintain the status quo. But she does lead the Democratic People's Party, which is the pro-independence party. Hmm. She beat this dude, Han Kuo Yu, in the election in January. He is a pro-China mayor of a major city. He's a Kuomintang guy. So Han Kuo Yu lost to Tsai Ing-wen easily. Easily. So the people of Taiwan are saying, we want to remain independent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we like Tsai Ing-wen and we like the DPP. And then, to add insult to injury, Han Kuo-yu lost a recall election in his city in June. As mayor? So he's, yeah, he's not even mayor anymore. So he got booted out of office. He's back to, he's a private citizen. <laughs> yeah, like uh, Gray Davis, right? <laughs> so here's the thing, though. Even the Kuomintang is no longer that interested in the One China policy. Both the DPP and the Kuomintang have condemned Chinese actions in Hong Kong, which killed the one country, two systems model that China once advocated for Taiwan and that the Kuomintang expressed some interest in. So the idea was, hey, you know, we can reunify with the Chinese communists and they'll let us kind of do our thing on Taiwan like the Hong Kongers did in Hong Kong. And yeah, we'll be part of China, but we'll have autonomy. One country, two systems. We can still run our democracy. Gotcha. Yeah. So, like, it, it, it wasn't out of the question, right? But at this point, guess what? One country, two systems is dead. 
Because yeah. it's dead in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is one country, one system. So, That's right. <laughs> it looks like China, um, China has a strong interest in making Taiwan be the same. Exactly. Yeah. So that, that idea has basically gone out the window. And after Hong Kong got squashed, Taiwan has started welcoming refugees from Hong Kong. They, a lot of them are moving to Taiwan. Now, they can't do too much to welcome them, right? Because they don't yeah. want to anger the Chinese any more than they already are. Hmm. But there are a lot of Hong Kongers ending up in Taiwan because it's kind of like the next logical place for them to go. It's culturally Chinese. Right. And very similar to Hong Kong, at least in some respects. Hopefully dissimilar in terms of what the outcome is going to be. Yeah. It'd be a real super unfortunate for people to like go through that in Hong Kong and then in Taiwan a second time. It, it would be. Yeah, I agree. That's the second reason. The third reason for strategic, strategic ambiguity breaking down is just confusion in United States foreign policy. <laughs> it's like, I think, the best way to put it. Mm -hmm. The Trump administration started out very pro-Taiwan, actually. Trump was the first president to ever take a congratulatory call from a Taiwanese president when he was elected in 2016. Re recall that the United States doesn't have an embassy in Taiwan. It's not supposed to have any official contacts with Taiwan. Right. Uh, Tsai Ing-wen called him in 2016 when he won, and he took the call, which he wasn't supposed to do. <laughs> well, isn't it? I, I, I don't exactly remember, but I think he didn't realize why what was going on. Like, he didn't realize that there was any reason not to. Yeah, he, he may not have known what was going on, although he also came in ready to start a trade war with China. So <laughs> I guess that's keep, true. Yeah, keep that in mind that he ran on a policy of anti-Chinese. Anti sure. It would be uh, very characteristic of him, though, to just have no idea about some, like, tenuous yeah, some, diplomatic some framework that, like... Yeah, she's like, oh, somebody's calling me, cool. Yeah, and they say <laughs> they want to congratulate me, put them through. Yeah, like, patch her in. <laughs> yeah. So the United States has sold Taiwan billions in planes and tanks. So we sell them F-16 fighters. We sell them M1A1 Abrams battle tanks. That is good, sort of, except that most of this hardware wouldn't help much in the event of a Chinese attack. Hmm. The first thing the Chinese would do is launch hundreds or maybe thousands of missiles against Taiwan that would destroy all of these planes and tanks. <sighs> in their hangars mm. on the runway or basically in storage. Yeah. Before any, no, before any sort of invasion. So <laughs> it's kind of not really what Taiwan needs. As we know... Store them underground. Yeah, right. They should. Or maybe in a mountain like the North Koreans do. <laughs> yeah, they drill into mountains and store all, all of their art artillery in there. So they're very hard to uh, take out with missiles. As we know, Trump hasn't been very good at working with U.S. allies. And when you're not good at working with your allies, you're not able to credibly extend deterrence to other allies. So when you do things like opening, que openly questioning the value of NATO, which he's done, when you say, you know, we don't really need to be in South Korea or Japan anymore, let's just withdraw and let them get nuclear weapons. That definitely doesn't help either because it just raises questions about mm -hmm. whether the United States would actually do anything if the Chinese came knocking. 
I think if it was Trump's decision alone, and it could be, he'd be like, eh, whatever. They're they're small. They can't do that much for us. So why get in a war? <laughs> I, I think you're right. And I think now more than ever before, like any anyone at the reins would be like, the price of going against China right now is is very high. Yeah. You gotta really think twice and then maybe a third time. There are there are pros and cons in, in both directions. John Bolton who was Trump's former national security advisor, wrote in his recent memoir that Trump regarded Taiwan as a chip to bargain away for trade concessions. <laughs> so John Bolton has also said Trump doesn't actually care about Taiwan at all. It's right. just like, whatever. He doesn't know anything about them. You know, mm-hmm. He just wants to use them. Which again, sounds right. Sounds plausible. So Pete, here's my question for you. Okay. What's going to happen? What happens next? Well, Steve, I mean, probably nothing, but Mm. you never know. You never know, do you? Which I'll add, I hope nothing. I hope nothing. (laughs) Because the opposite of nothing is anything. Yeah. Or I don't know if that's mathematically true, but anything in this case is bad, pretty much. Yeah, no, Um, I I agree. The opposite of nothing is anything. And (laughs) we, we, we want a continued nothing. We've had nothing for 70 years, and we want the continuance of nothing. Right. And unfortunately, China is making it very clear that they don't want the continuance of nothing. Yeah. So right at this moment, the U.S. is badly distracted. Oh, yeah. You know, we've got a few things going on. Knowing that there's at least some chance that we'd lose, lose a conventional conflict with China would we yeah. would we come to Taiwan's aid right now it's an unknown uh, like you said Donald Trump doesn't seem interested in well in foreign wars generally but maybe in protecting Taiwan specifically for the purposes of this discussion yeah Joe Biden might be more likely to to respond based right. on I don't know understanding the last 50 years and having a <laughs> yeah. t- different set of well, va- just, world value, values about what happens in the world. Right, just caring about foreign policy. Right. Which he very clearly does, and, and Trump mostly doesn't. Yeah, and we want China to believe that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense, even if it might lose. Well, let's see what right. happens tomorrow. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the U.S. is badly distracted. No question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And a question to ask is, you know, will the military balance continue to tilt in China's favor? Because they're getting stronger and stronger in that regard. Mm-hmm. They're investing more and more. If their military continues to get bigger and better, then Xi uh, Jinping might have less incentive to attack now because he has an even better chance of winning that war a few years down the road. Right. He can just wait. Yeah. The question becomes, well, suppose that the next American president, whether that's Trump or Biden or, you know, some number of administrations from now decides, well, we have to take this more seriously and starts building. We can probably still outbuild them. I don't know how long that will be the case, but we could get into an arms race Mm -hmm. with the Chinese, which is also a scary proposition because arms races can end in disaster. 
<laughs> if they go on for long enough. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to knock on wood and say we're very lucky that one hasn't ended in disaster yeah. for us. Yeah, if if Xi Jinping thinks we're likely to enter an arms race, he might actually have more incentive to attack now. Right. Get while the getting's good, because it could be that this is kind of like the high watermark for China. I don't think he believes that's the case. He seems to be all in on Chinese greatness over the coming years and decades. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a, a behaving in that way. So he's behaving in such a way that he probably doesn't feel like he needs to fight right now. Got it. And if he if he lost, if he brought China into a fight with us and lost, it might end his political yeah, dominance. It would be a it would be a big risk. Like he has absolute control of the government. Mm-hmm. But that could change in a hurry with a lost war. And frankly, it usually does. <laughs> <laughs> in this country, we have elections. In China, not so much. People end up on show trials on TV, right. that Just sort of thing. Allies around you turn into knives out. There you go. Yeah. She also has, has a time frame that he said for total reunification of China the year is supposed to be 2049. It's an interesting choice of year. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, isn't that the year of the new Blade Runner? It is, and I actually heard that's why he made that decision, which is it's interesting. <laughs> he's, he's a fan of noted Quebecois director Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> I think it's actually, he's a Ryan Gosling guy, but whatever. Oh, okay, sure. I mean, who isn't? Yeah. But yeah, so his timetable is multi-decade, you know, he's mm-hmm. he's pretending to patience, but he was willing to speed that timetable up a lot in the case of Hong Kong. Right. Of and course, Hong Kong had a bunch of demonstrations. Yeah. Hong Kong was also popping off, uh-huh. which is not really the case for Taiwan. So if Taiwan stays more or less in its lane, maybe, t- you know, 2049 is still OK for Taiwan. But having U.S. diplomats come visit is sort of it leaving its lane, right? Yeah, that's not supposed to happen. And and it's both Taiwan and the United States leaving their respective lanes. Right, and this was just last week it happened. Is that correct? That's right. So we don't know what's going to happen next week. We just have no idea. <laughs> we have no idea, yeah. We'll, we'll see if this provocation succeeded in getting Taiwan back in its lane. Mm-hmm. One thing that seems clear is that Taiwan is going to be unlikely to want to reunify peacefully with China at this point. <laughs> right. Xi's behavior elsewhere has turned both the Chi- Taiwanese parties against the whole one China idea. Big time. Yeah. Yeah, and but this was not always the case, right? The Kuomintang uh, was officially pro-one China until this summer, right? So we still had one, one major political party in Taiwan that might have been okay with reunification. But it decided it couldn't win anymore? Couldn't win elections? No, because <laughs> this, this dude, this mayor, who went up against Tsai Ing-wen got blown out and then recalled. Got it. And he's, pro, he's pro-China, and I think they're a political party, and they're like, well, nobody wants this anymore, <laughs> and we're a democracy, <laughs> so we should probably change our platform, right? right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's how democracy is supposed to work. You lose a bunch of elections, and you kind of need to think about what you're doing, right? Hint, hint, Democratic Party of the United States. Right. Or the Republican Party. 
right? <laughs> if they lose some elections. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. So can the Chinese Communist Party afford to allow Taiwan to remain independent long-term? It's a risk either way, right? It is a risk either way, assuming no change in the Chinese Communist Party, right? If the Communist Party were to become more moderate, start opening up again, because at one Hmm. point it looked as though that might happen um, in the 90s Hmm. and even early in the 2000s. They appeared to be moderating somewhat, okay, loosening. They've gone hard the other direction and are now at full dictatorship, obviously. Yeah. To- not totalitarian, but in some ways like approaching that level. Yeah. Here's why it's a risk either way. If China lets Taiwan be and Taiwan continues to thrive, it would be a bigger threat to the legitimacy legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party than Hong Kong was because Taiwan is just a much bigger deal and more democratic too. Right, it's an actual democracy. It's a Chinese democracy, not just the long-awaited Guns N' Roses album. (laughs) The Chinese Communist Party has has said, like, a democracy is incongruent, incongruous with with Chinese culture. Like, it just can't can't work. And yet, there's Taiwan working quite well. Yeah, no, the party needs to be in control of China. That's the only way that China is going to become great. And like enjoy its its true destiny in the mm-hmm. world. It has to be done under Chinese Communist Party control. And like more than anything else, this is Xi Jinping's policy. These two things must go together. Chinese Communist Party control and Chinese greatness. <laughs> it's like you can't have one without the other. Uh-huh. So he needs to control everything and then everything will be awesome, basically, is his argument. Yeah. And you look at Taiwan, it's like, well, you don't control those guys, and they're awesome. So <laughs> And they're just like us. I mean, they're my that's like my uncle over there. Like, yeah, exactly. Literally. You know, I have family over there. Like, right. you know, I still talk to those guys. Well, maybe not so much anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe that's not allowed. Hmm. I'm not sure. If you say no, though, no, we can't allow them to remain independent long term. That means you have to beat Taiwan probably the United States, possibly Japan, and who knows who else in a shooting war. So you think probably still, huh, on the USA? Yeah, I, th- I think so. It, like, it remains to be seen what our involvement would be. Do I think that 100,000 Marines are going to land on Taiwan? I do not. Do I think that we would bomb the heck out of... Chinese military installations, installations potentially. So just to say it again, this is the reason that this is one of the most dangerous situations on earth. Yeah, probably the most dangerous situation. The the one exception is probably India, Pakistan. Okay, but this is like the thing, the one like believable path that could potentially set China and the U.S. on a shooting war. Soon, like soon, soon, soon. Yeah. in the next potentially, I mean, probably not, but it could happen in the next year. Yeah. Um, Like the likelihood is still low, but there's nothing else that is like believable where you can like see each step along the path to where 
if China continues to grow, then it just becomes more and more plausible, basically. And there's no reason to think that they won't, (laughs) Mm -hmm. basically. If the United States shrinks while China is growing, then that gets even more dangerous. Hmm. Sure, um, sure. Yeah. yeah. And and this was flagged 25 years ago. Yeah. By people who know what they're talking about and ain't nothing changed in the right direction. Right. China's probably overperformed in terms of what anyone expected. Very much so. Yeah. I think they've exceeded most expectations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, not a surprise that Xi Jinping is making some noise. Not a surprise. What do you think, Steve? What are your final thoughts on this? it's scary. (laughs) Not going to lie. Again, unlikely that anything is going to kick off in 2020, although it is 2020, so you never know, (laughs) right? (laughs) As I said, we still have three months in the year. That is a a good motto to live by each day this year. Each day of 2020. And here's the thing. People talk about 2020 as if it's the worst year ever. There's no guarantee that 2021 is going to be better. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, I hate man. to say it. <laughs> I don't want to hear that right now. I know. I know. <laughs> nobody wants to hear it, but I'm the guy who says things nobody wants to hear. That's kind of what I do. It's what I do. It's what Let, I do, Jerry. I mean, let's say this. Any year that, where there is potentially a coronavirus vaccine has a likelihood of being better than 2020. Yeah. No, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> I can think of other stuff that might go wrong in 2021. Let's list it all on our way out of this episode. Nah, no, nah. just kidding. That's a different episode. That's a bonus episode for our Patreon subscribers. <laughs> just kidding. We don't have that yet. Yeah, it's 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 frightening. And it's just like, you get this sense that it's a threat that's just growing. And particularly as long as Xi Jinping is in charge, mm-hmm. it's not going to recede. The things that each country wants are just too in opposition. Like, yeah. there's no... Yeah, and... He is uncompromising. He's, he's not a guy that compromises, we've seen. So when he decides that it is time to go, he's going to go. He just he hasn't made that decision yet, and I don't think he's going to make it anytime soon. But like, it's just one guy, and he could, right? Right. I don't, I don't think there's any checks remaining on what he can or can't do with the Chinese military. And whether it, whether it ends up being him or someone else, it does seem like it's a matter of time yeah, rather than a matter of if. Yeah. And look, I think, he, I think he would prefer to not fight a war against the United States or have to invade Taiwan. He would prefer the Taiwanese to stay, get back in their lane and just wait to be assimilated. But if he feels that there's a real possibility that they're going to make an open break, he won't allow it. Yeah. He won't, he won't, we've seen that he won't allow a Hong Kong type situation. And this is a bigger threat than Hong Kong was. It could be. Ultimately. Depending on, on how things develop in Taiwan domestically. Well, I'm going to agree with you that it is frightening. And also it's just interesting to learn that, that this is what it is and, and it is what it has been for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's in the news right now. When I say right now, I mean in like the last week or two. Right. And I'm sure it has been in the last few years off and on, but it's kind of flown under the radar, I think, in terms of how big of a threat it actually is. Oh, yeah. You know, like we've been focused on the Middle East. We've been focused on Russia. North Korea. Uh, North Korea as well. Iran. We've been focused on China, but not for this reason. Yeah, not this facet 
of the Chinese picture. Exactly. But this is actually the most, in some ways, the most important part of the Chinese picture. Mm-hmm. And, and they've been getting attention for other reasons. You know, Hong Kong, the main one. This is, this is much bigger than Hong Kong, yeah. potentially. So, Well, what are we going to do, Steve? I think we're probably going to continue to monitor the situation, Pete. I thought you were going to say curl up in bed and just... Oh, yeah. No, that, that is my playbook for the rest of 2020, as you know. <laughs> it's to uh, just turn off my brain and hopefully um, wake up in 2021. Yeah, I think that's a good mental health strategy. Turn off, <laughs> yeah. turn off your brain. <laughs> Turn off my brain. Yeah, but we will monitor this situation. Yeah, we're going to turn off this week's podcast. I think we've, we've done Taiwan, huh? We have, Steve. Good talking to you, man. As always, take care, buddy. You too, man. Bye. Bye.